All right, everybody, I'm going to be talking about Vortex 2. And Vortex is an acronym for Verification of the Origins of Rotation in Tornadoes Experiment. Now say that fast ten times with cheese crackers in your mouth. <laughs> yeah. All right, we'll see what we can do about advancing. Oh, okay, so at least I know it, it's here. Ah, I've got to be very, very careful. There we go. All right, Vortex 2's purpose is to explore the mechanisms of tornado genesis, maintenance, and demise. And how do you do that? You do that with an army. Bunch of different vehicles, you'll see the Dow out there, probes, aircraft, you do it on the ground, you do it with weather balloons, to determine the wind field near the ground in tornadoes. That's one of the things that really was important in Vortex 2 was to try to study what happens near the ground because that's where people live. Study the relationship between tornadoes and their parent storms in the larger scale environment. Why do some storms produce tornadoes and other storms don't? That was a big question they were asking in Vortex 2. And in to improve the weather prediction and forecasting of severe storms and tornadoes. That is years down the road, I think, but there are some interesting discoveries that have been made with Vortex uh, 2, and I think that's going to be out in the science world for years to come. Now, Vortex 2 operated, yes, in Nebraska. We also operated in Kansas, Oklahoma, the Texas Panhandle, eastern Colorado. We did get up into South Dakota occasionally and got over to uh, Wyoming. Occasionally, we got into Iowa and northern Missouri, but it had to be operating in areas that don't have a lot of hills and trees because the radars need to have a flat platform and an unobstructed view. Do we have unobstructed views in Nebraska? And yeah, quite a few places. And so it was ideal to chase in Nebraska and in Kansas where it's open and there's not many obstructions around. On the right, this is a radar view in green, reflectivity view of what a storm would look like on radar. And then the idea was to put all these vehicles around. These little things are called stick nets. They're basically a weather station on a tripod. The Doppler on wheels would be positioned at various locations so they can triangulate into the storm and get a three-dimensional view of the airflow. All right, so the equipment in the, in the Armada, hundreds of weather balloons in four vehicles. And if you get a chance to see a weather balloon, there's going to be one out here in the west, isn't there, uh, a little later on in the day. 24 stick nets, which are weather instruments on tripods, 14 instrumented pods in four vehicles, and I was in one of those vehicles, 13 mobile mesonets, which are weather instruments mounted on a rack on top of a vehicle, and the vehicle drives through the storm. Ten Doppler radars. Now, why all those radars? Well, each one of those radars had to triangulate with another radar of its same frequency. So there were various frequencies that the, op that the radars operated by, and that they see different views of a storm, see different kinds of droplet sizes, some look at the tornado scale, some look at the storm scale, some look overall at the entire environment, depending on the type of radar you have. Four distrometers. These folks love rain. They measure raindrop sizes, trying to correlate that with what the radar is seeing. Four photogrammetry teams. When you take cameras and you put them in two different locations, you can triangulate and find cloud boundaries. And then you can take those cloud boundaries and put them on the radar and find how the radar looks like inside the cloud. And then several media and support vehicles. So weather balloons, you're all familiar with weather balloons. These were launched several times a day. Some were outside the storm. Some were very close to the storm, trying to get a sample of the environment. The stick nets were weather stations on tripods. There's 24 of these that were put around the storm and hoping that the storm would go over 
and we get different wind directions, wind speeds, get an idea of the environment of the storm. Oops. Just a little tricky on the uh, button here. This is the Mesonet fleet. Imagine driving down uh, the road on this, huh? Got to be careful of low bridges, low carports when you pull into the motel in the evening. <clears throat> you want to clip those. Each one of those wind vanes up there costs a thousand bucks. So you don't want to just, yeah, boom, that's what would happen, all right. <laughs> Thanks for the sound effect. That was perfect. <laughs> The, the mobile mesonets would actually go ahead and get a very dense set of observations. These are observations of wind speed direction as they drive up and around. You can see the changes of wind by the barbs that are on here. Look at the different radars. One of them, of course, is parked out in front, the Dow 6. There were smart R radars. Different frequencies, the Dow 5 over here gets up really close to a tornado, gets to see the inside of the tornado, what's going on. Folks that like rain, they have these distrometers here that shoots a laser beam between one sensor and the other here, and as the rain falls through that beam, they're able to determine the drop size and the distribution of drops. The photogrammetry team setting up cameras at different locations. They're able to get a view of the storm, various locations, and able to put that in a 3D perspective so we can plot radar on top of it. So here are some of the statistics overall for Vortex 2, which operated in 2009 and 2010. It was a two-year government-funded project. In 2009, it was 34 days. In 2010, it was 46 days. There were up to 160 people were involved in Vortex 2. So how many motel rooms each night? About 115. Some bunked in with others. And 9,200 rooms in all. And this, this really creates a difficult situation if you're going to some place like North Platte. You're basically taking out almost all the hotel rooms there <laughs> and trying to to stay there overnight. So how far did V2 travel? 12,000 miles in 09 and 20,000 in 2010. And boy, this is a biggie now, fuel, right? With the prices of fuels going up, with 100,000 gallons of fuel. Now back during Vortex 2, it was running around oh, 219, 239. Uh, can you imagine today what it would cost? How many supercells did Vortex 2 sample? We had 13 in 2009 and 30 in 2010. Tornadoes, however, were fairly lean in 2009. The whole project, only one tornado was sampled. But we were fortunate in 2010 to sample 14. And how much did V2 cost the taxpayers? $13 million for the two-year project. And here's the fleet. Lots of people involved. There's the radar trucks in the background, the pods, and there's two of them on the Dow. The pods are right here. That's what I, my job was, is to handle the pods, put them in various places. But can you imagine the logistics here? You know, out of the 65 vehicles, you know, 20 of them need fuel. Well, you know, that we, can, we can easily go in and swamp a small town. It's not, all right? What about parking? You know, what parking lot would hold 100 vehicles? You know, usually it's a, a Walmart somewhere, you know, that we could go to. And then, you know, checking in and checking out of the hotel, you know. We could take a small town like Ogallala and go ahead and, and make it a, a very busy place. And then food. I mean, these people need to eat, right? So it's like you can all pile into Denny's at midnight or, you know, yes, we need a table for 100, please. You know. <laughs> and then we had to have two vans dedicated solely for luggage. Those are all people had, had to wear clothes, obviously, on those things. And then the traffic. 
we encountered a couple of these one-lane roads. Ever encountered one of those? Can you imagine doing that with a hundred vehicles all of a sudden? Having to wait for that light to change green for a few seconds, let a few vehicles go, and then change this red. Took us an hour. In 2009, GM, kind enough to donate a Hummer, and the Hummer vehicle here was equipped with a mast and had wind sensors on top, and then the box in the back over here, that's where the tornado pods were. But however, in 2010, GM discontinued the Hummer, wouldn't donate one. So Josh Warman comes to me and says, Tim, we can't ask you back on 2010 because we don't have a vehicle. So I asked him if I could loan my vehicle to the cause, which is just an old beat-up Chevy pickup truck. And he said, sure, sure, loan us your vehicle. <clears throat> so I asked Dr. Warman if he could pimp my ride <laughs> to make it look like, you know, something like a storm chaser would love to have. And sure enough, boom, he went ahead, took my Chevy, and just really did a phenomenal job with it. A custom-made camper top with fancy lights on it, and a, I have a triangular mast here, and all the wind sensors, 13 and a half feet up in that. So I had to watch those uh, bridge clearances quite, quite a bit there with the decals on the vehicle and that, cleaned it up pretty nice. Not bad at all. So the mast has the wind vane up there, which measures wind speed and direction. It's got the temperature, humidity, and the housing here. Piece of just PVC tubing is all that's, that's there, but it has a fan in there that aerates it. The mast is welded onto the frame in the front of the vehicle so that if, even if we were to get hit by a tornado, I think it would still remain welded. Now, the data logger is in the back because that mast actually records wind speed, direction, temperature, and relative humidity one time per second. So 3,600 times an hour. And we got uh, this data logger, and we just tie into it with a computer, the interface here, and get the whole day's worth of data. So we were a roving weather station on wheels. Then we had to power all this stuff with inverters. So it's a good thing that we didn't cause any vehicle fires here. That these power inverters were, were off the battery. So the front seat of my vehicle looked like this. <laughs> it's just spectacular, lots of fancy lights. No, actually, it's, it had a couple of computers. On this computer on the right, I would use the uh, Baron XM system, which is a satellite receiver, so I don't need cell phones for operating this, and I can see radar anytime, anywhere, except under a bridge or under a canopy. And then over here, I would have the radar that would be tied in the cell phone, so I could see only when we're in cell service what the radar is looking like. So I have a backup, just in case. And I have a tripod that is bungeed onto the front here, so in case we see something, I could just let the video go on this. Then the back, we had the tornado pods. Again, two of them are on the dows outside. These things are pretty neat. And it had some, obviously, safety gear on there. Okay. The pods have this kind of mast on it with the temperature and relative humidity sensor. It's got the wind speed. There's another anemometer right here. The housing is where the data logger is kept, and you can tie into that, and then it's powered by a battery. So the housing is in a steel case, because we don't want the tornado to destroy that computer box in there. And we can hook into it via a computer on the outside and get the data from that. So inside looks just like the data logger for the mesonet. Then we would go ahead at the end of the day and just simple laptop, just tie into that steel box and download the data. Again, one time per second it would record all this. And I had three pods plus the mast on the vehicle would record as well. So we got tremendous amount of data. And there were a total of 21 pods. 
Well, you can just imagine that alone, the amount of information that was gathered. And it's powered off a simple 12-volt battery, uh, every one of those. It's pretty neat. The anemometer here has wind speed at the propeller and wind direction with the vane. The sonic anemometer is another type of anemometer that measures when the air blows through from one of these sensors to the other. Inside the plastic housing is the temperature and radiation, I mean the uh, relative humidity sensors. And then we had cameras on our pods because we were the closest to tornadoes. So we would drop these instruments off, hopefully right in, in front of a tornado, get out of the way and let the cameras go, go do their thing. And we were doing that. So there's a tornado. Can you see it? Where's the tornado? It's rain-wrapped actually right there. And the rain is wrapping all around it, but we're deploying the pod right now. We had to orient it just right, get it pointed to the north, let it go ahead and record one time per second. That was my main task with Vortex 2 was to drop these pods in front of tornadoes. But I also had some other tasks. That mesonet station, well, we would sample the storm environment. Here comes a storm at us. This one was not going to be a tornado producer. We knew that. But we would still sample the storm because storms that don't produce tornadoes really are just as important as storms that do produce tornadoes from giving us another case of trying to figure out why that is. Then I had to forecast for Vortex 2. I had to get up at 6 a.m. every morning, look at models, pre prepare a presentation like I'm talking to you now at 8.45 to the Vortex folks on where I think we should go. And then we would chase, get in maybe at midnight, 1 a.m., and then we'd have to start this all over again the next day. No rest, day after day after day. And then, add on top of those tasks, I had to assist in the damage survey if the tornado were to hit something. So although I really enjoyed being part of Vortex 2, it was physically exhausting, physically demanding. When I started with Vortex 2, I looked like Conan here. And when I ended up with Vortex 2, I look like that. <laughs> that happens. All right, I'm going to take you through a case now where we were very successful on. It was June 10, 2010, the Deer Trail, Colorado tornadoes. This was a case where upslope. This is where wind is blowing up into the, the higher terrain. And storms develop, and they begin to rotate. And there was a tornado there coming at me uh, in the distance. Now you turn on the TV and you look at the local weather and you see, oh my goodness, look at this. There's 14 highs and four lows. Where are we going to chase? Can you find where we're going to go? We were in Nebraska on this day. We were starting out uh, near Chadron, Nebraska, and we were going to have to do a chase this day. So at 8 a.m., I forecasted that we'd have to drop south to Kimball area right there on, on I-80, and that would be because east upslope winds would, would create great turning at low levels. When you have west winds at mid-levels, east winds at low levels, that's the spin we're looking for, because if there's a storm that develops in that column of spinning air, it too will spin. There are also a couple of other areas interesting. There was a big mesoscale system right over eastern Nebraska. A lot of rain cooled air. Now, we're not interested in that so much as we are to the south, where there is a front, in this case a stationary front, oh, from Beatrice on westward, and going all the way over to the surface low, which is just northeast of Goodland, Kansas. And then we had this warm, moist air. These temperatures are in red, and the dew points are in green. And we always like to see high dew points, which are 65, 70 dew points. So we like to see those 70 numbers. And we like to see pretty high temperatures, not too high. 80, 85 is sufficient. But you can see back up slope, it's fairly cool. And that's typically what happens. We have to wait for the skies to clear out there and warm up. 
looking at mid-levels, what we like to see is the trough in the West. Hey, we got a trough in the West today. We have a chance of severe weather from here on east, northeast today. So you know what I'm doing when I leave here. <laughs> so we have southwesterly flow coming right over North Platte. 40 knots of flow at mid-levels, that's sufficient. That's from the southwest. We have easterly winds at the surface. Great turning. And there's that big, this is a satellite view, and this is a big storm system over eastern Nebraska. It's clearing out here to the west. There's a boundary that's in there. You saw on that surface map. And looking at the visible, we see out there in the panhandle, how the skies are clearing. You get a lot of heating going on. And this is uh, in the morning. So this makes for a great daytime heating. Now we do look at models. This is a 12-hour NAM model. And this is of surface temperature. And the oranges indicate warm. Now you can see where it kind of tongues back into and points back here towards the panhandle. And we like that area where it's warm temperatures kind of bend westward. And for the, the dew points, or this is actually temperature at 700, but it's warm up here, and we want to be on the cool side of the 700 millibar temperature max because that's where your capping inversion is that holds down everything. The warmer it is aloft, the less unstable it is. And then at 500 millibars, Here's this trough of cold air coming in from the west, southwest flow here. We like to see that. We have the identical kind of setup here for today. As long as it is warm, we get some higher dew points here. We could have storms here later this afternoon. And then another thing we look at is how unstable the air is. And in red here is CAPE, which is actually the amount of positive area on a sounding, but that just means energy. And the amount of energy here in red points back again, oh, Imperial on westward, maybe Akron in Colorado. So I like the area. I circled in red kind of the intersection between Colorado and Nebraska as an area that I would like to go out and chase. The Storms Prediction Center also did the same area. They're looking at the same thing. They did have a slight risk extending southward into the Texas Panhandle, which is exactly where they're, they have a slight risk today extending southward into Kansas. <clears throat> For tornado probabilities, 10% chance of tornado probability here in northeast Colorado, southwest Nebraska. All right, so there's pros and cons on every chase. Every forecast has pros and cons. Not all of the ingredients come together all of the time. We, in green, well, we like the surface upslope flow. The skies will clear out. Eastern edge of the southwest flow, which I like. The deep layer shear, which is where we have east winds at the surface. And at mid-levels, we've got west winds. The strong cap in southern Colorado, which is holding down convection down there. So we want to stay away from southern Colorado. Weaker winds in southern Colorado down there. And there was also weaker uh, uh, energy or, or cape there. So our target was get down to I-80 in that area, Kimball, Sydney area. So we went ahead and looking at a satellite here view at 3 o'clock. We're now somewhere in this area in the southern panhandle. Skies clearing out very nicely, heating up nicely there. But nothing's happening. We've got some clouds over the mountains. This is Wyoming and Colorado. But all of a sudden at 545, a tornado watch box outlined in red is issued by the Storms Prediction Center. Storms are developing on the, the front range of the Rockies and moving off uh, east and north of Denver. There's an isolated cell sitting out here kind of near Lyman and another one southeast of Denver. We, by the way, are sitting up at the circle up there and we decided to come down to Fort Morgan and eventually ended up near Deer Trail. At 6 o'clock, a satellite showing you individual cells, and we target individual cells. There's another one. Because they're more apt to produce long-lived tornadoes than a line that is occurring here in eastern Wyoming, coming into the Nebraska panhandle. We also have radar. 
And looking at radar, I am probe 14, which is located way, way up there in the upper right-hand corner. We are trying to get south. Some of the armada here indicated by the various flags, as you see. We have a program that shows everybody's position. So we can look at uh, NCAR. That's a vehicle there that uh, is part of the armada and SR-1 and SCT. You can see where the Army is. Most of them are coming into and around Storm 1 right there. But there's another storm down here. Nothing in between yet. This is at 638. At 708, you can see we're all in Storm Number 1. Just a big mob scene like bees going to the hive, you know. And the reds and the purples are very intense, uh, you know, baseball hail. We're interested in the southern end, which is the blue cross hatching, you see. The southern end, that's where the mesocyclone is. That's where the storm is actually swirling around. I am P-14 waiting out there because the storm, to me, doesn't look very impressive yet. So I'm waiting, and I'm hedging my bets. Perhaps Storm 2 down here will be a better target, and I don't want to get too close to Storm 1 and then can't get down to Storm 2. Storm 1 looking west has a nice rain-free base, precipitation here, and even though you can see through it, don't let that fool you, there could be baseball hail here just north of that updraft. So I'm keeping my distance from it, 716. I don't see any wall cloud, I don't see any precursors to tornado development here. At 716, I'm still way out there over on the right. Here's the big storm. And it's starting to get an interesting hook feature here where the cross hatchings are. But if you look at the line of cross hatching, it's 7 o'clock here, 7.05 here, 7.10 here. You can see, where's it heading? It's heading right for me. So I'm just going to wait. Since I don't see anything imminent yet, I'm just going to wait and let the storm come to me. <clears throat> and sure enough, it, here it is. It's coming. Here's the appendage on it. What that is is simply rain that's wrapping around the back end of the updraft. That's all that really is. Doesn't mean a tornado. Not until it really hooks around and makes a nice figure six. And I'm sitting out here. The other uh, vehicles are scattered about now because they have to measure different kinds of areas of the storm. Some have to get behind the storm. Some get in the core. Some drop south. All right, so I have to concentrate on the radar and what's going on outside. It's tough to do sometimes because everybody wants to watch outside, right? You, always, you don't want to look at any more data. Now you just want to go totally visual. So it was very difficult for me to go ahead and concentrate on the display. What I needed was something like, oh, the shruggy or something. <laughs> so I, I didn't have to look outside because I wanted to look outside all the time. All right. But just to show you how fast things can change, at 7.31, keep that in mind, 7.31, we're at storm number one, storm number two's down here, it doesn't look that impressive yet, but then all of a sudden in between, a new cell develops. Now I can't see storm two anymore because of this rain shaft that's occurring here. It's a weak rain shaft, but watch what happens in a matter of about 13 minutes. 7.44. 13 minutes! This thing goes from a weak rain shaft to a baseball hail producer. And it's forming a line. Now the problem with that is the anvil from this storm, the very top, is blowing down into storm one and raining down into storm one. And that's a death knell for storm one. And we know that now. So all of the armada is up there. They're looking now at the tail end storm here. We've, there's a mesocyclone on it down here approaching Interstate 70, which comes out of Denver. So we're sitting there going, storm one is toast. We need to get down to storm two here. So let's go to a town appropriately named <laughs> Last Chance. 
We are running out of time. It's 7.44, right? We are running out of time. So we're all diving south now, trying to get past this new cell. The new cell, nothing too exciting about it. It has an inflow band, but it's all rain. We, want, we need to get to the tail end Charlie Storm. We finally get down to the tail end Charlie Storm, and it's an LP, low precipitation storm. It's having a tough time in the heavy capping inversion. Remember earlier we said forecasting-wise, we didn't like southern Colorado because it was too warm aloft up there. But now clearing out of the lower clouds, we're starting to see a better structure. We're starting to see a little lowering down to the right. Something interesting is going on here. And sure enough, as we cleared away and kept on going south, we're getting this spiral banding as it's fighting the cap. Looks like the barber pole updraft. Some mid-level band coming on in here, spiraling on around. Our winds were out of the northeast, feeding right into the base. Which way is that anvil blowing out? It's going out back overhead. We have a total change in wind direction here. Northeast winds at the surface, spiraling around. You can see the spin, and then coming out to the northeast aloft. That's excellent deep layer shear. That, that really, we know, will continue to make this storm just spin and spin and spin. Now, to make a tornado, you need something more than just a spinning storm. You need to force that updraft to constrict. And in this case, we need an, some sort of a rear flank downdraft to come in and try to constrict the base of that and stretch up a vortex. <clears throat> so we're all coming on south. Storm one, long gone, way up the top. New cell here has really messed it all up. And it just shows you how in a short time period, Mother Nature can change. We know that, right? We know that you can go from clear skies to cloudy skies quickly. Well, here we have a storm that was had a potential to produce a tornado, storm one, and then it gets rained in by this new cell that pops up in 13 minutes. And now we're down here at this southern storm. And you can see us all coming on south here, the whole armada, moving southward towards last chance. And we're going to talk about this second storm relative to the town of last chance, 804. Running out of daylight here. And it's moving. Looks like it's going to pass south of last chance. Before we could really get set up initially, something is starting to happen, isn't it? The cloud base lowers here, and then at the very north end, what's this? Tornado. Tornado started here. Again, big hail falling out to the, and we're looking west here, west, southwest, under the updraft here. So the tornado comes on down 811. One thing that's really interesting about uh, Doppler on wheels and what they were seeing was they were seeing actual ground contact before we could confirm visible contact. So there is sort of an invisible vortex in here that comes on down to the ground. Now, if that was over an open field, then you'd see maybe some dirt and dust churning up, but this was over grassland. This is not much out there except maybe a few cows. Didn't see any of those flying around. At 8.13, then the visible contact is seen. At 8.14, more contrast appearance. But you can see it's out there in the middle of nowhere. Back away a little bit. Look at the structure here. Beautiful spiral base to it. Tornado sitting there on the north end. The rain is wrapping around it, so on radar, we're seeing that figure six configuration, the reflectivity. Here's the radar. So here's the echo that comes around this way, the brighter colors being uh, larger drop sizes, hail probably in this area, coming on around like so. So where you see this green line, that's kind of the area we think that maybe the storm is going to track over the most important part, which is actually heading uh, this time a little bit north of the town of Last Chance over there on the right. Now the Armada is spread out. I'm right at the X, P14. So I'm waiting for the, the tornado to come to me. 
and because there's no roads. Like I don't have one of these all-terrain vehicles that can just go bouncing out over the rangeland. A lot of vehicles are over here. Some are up north of Last Chance. Some of them are getting uh, observations that are west of us. Those poor folks, they are in the core, and they're getting northwest winds and probably baseball hail up there. Hook comes on around, like so. Again, green line maybe needs to be shifted a little bit closer to last chance as the uh, tornado is moving towards us. I'm up again at the X, P14. Then all of a sudden something kind of weird happens. And this is again why we're out there to look at storms is to try to find out why something like, like this happens. This is the main base right here. This is what we're looking at. It's rain's wrapping around it. But then you see what's happening in the back flank over here? What's going on here? Out the northwest edge of this updraft, which is the old updraft of the first tornado, comes this, another tornado. You know, the tornado's not in the, in the right place. <laughs> it isn't. It's, it's out to the northwest. It's not supposed to be out there. It's supposed to be back over toward where the, updraft, the main updraft is. But it, des it decides, you know, to do its own thing and sits out there, uh, just going through the rangeland again. On the echo, it's out here somewhere, right, where the main circulation is down here. So this is one of the reasons for Vortex 2 is to try to figure out why tornadoes don't occur where they should occur. You know, they should be right there, and it's over here. Uh, a lot of the Armada is now getting beat up in the core. Uh, we're trying to stay on the east side of the core. Another group of them are, is over here south of Last Chance. You only have two roads now to work on. That's it. So, and we're waiting for the storm to come to us. Meanwhile, back to the northwest. Ha-ha. You know, I'm out here. The very edge. It's actually behind the precip, sitting out in the back end of the storm. It was illuminated white from the other side, uh, from some chaser's vantage point. It lasted at 8.23 here. 8.25 sitting out there. Finally, it ropes out at 826. And again, it's back out here. So we're all up there. There's last chance. Here comes the event. It's coming towards us. There's the hook. Everything's going to happen right where we say, right? All right, closing on in to last chance. As the crosshairs come closer and closer, you can see the group gets Thicker and thicker here. Oh, it's time to activate the pods. We get out of the vehicle and arm the pods, make sure the cameras are working, the instruments are working. Whoops. All right, so here we have the, where's last chance? Oh, it's up there. It's gonna pass just to the south of town we're east at probe 14 location there. Everything is ready. Deploy the pods. And the storm spins overhead. Doesn't set down a tornado again. Just rotates over us, spits out a few hail balls, like, you know, stoning you and uh, just saying, ha-ha, and that's it. So we tried to follow it north. And east of last chance, but it never would produce again. So although we didn't get a hit on a pod of, a, of the tornado from this day, we still got a lot of great data of the environment. I think overall it was a success, but not all the time are you going to be successful on every little endeavor that, that you want in the experiment here. And here, well, we just didn't get the pods in the, in the tornado. But we celebrated. We saw a couple tornadoes. We're happy about it. Although the forecast I made wasn't uh, very good because it was a little too far north, it still was a successful chase. So that's, that's really important, I think, is even if you blow the forecast to try to salvage out the operation. The tornadoes occurred in open country, so we could not deploy the pods. Uh, the first storm was actually seeded by the convection to the south, and you saw how fast, the sky can change. In 13 minutes, you got another storm that blows on you. The southern storm was the tornado 
producer, LP storm. We think that the convergence may have been enhanced by the storms to the north. Also, the storms to the north are what basically seeded storm number one. So, although there's the target area, the tornadoes occurred just outside of the target on the south end, it can only be attributed to human error. Right? That's what Hal would say, the computer. Computers don't make mistakes, people do. But overall, I've learned something very important. <laughs> check your data and check it often. From Wilford Brimley, actor and storm chaser. I can say, though, that the operation was a success. Dr. Orman was very happy. Sean Casey is very happy. He was able to get some great inf instrumentation. Actually got hit by a tornado the year prior. Mike Bettis, very happy. Weather Channel is always happy when they get tornadoes uh, on television. Hillary Clinton <laughs> was very happy. Absolutely. Vortex 2 was a success. The Colorado cows were happy. And none of them got hit. They all saw the tornado miles away. They got out of the way. Well, that's pretty good. All right. The Mesonet group was not so happy. All right. Some of these guys pay the price for going north in the hail core, okay? And that's your view from outside your windshield, you know? Get all that glass splinters on the inside, that sort of thing, okay. So I'd like to thank NSF and NOAA and all those who helped fund Vortex 2. It was a phenomenal experience for me. Dr. Werman and Karen Kosova were just wonderful to deal with and work with. Dr. Worman's wife with logistics on hotels, and that was really a major job. My drivers, uh, Sean McQuinn, Kerry Cunningham, and the photographers. I don't take pictures of myself. So all the photos you saw here that were, had me in them were taken by the various photographers, including Ryan right up here. I gotta pay, hey Ryan, thank you so much. And Gino, and Chris Hill, even Jim Reed, did he disappear? He must have disappeared. He's signing his books. Okay. So I've got to thank all the photographers because they uh, were, were really essential in making this presentation because I had now the photos and they shared with them with me. It was very nice. So uh, there's the group with the Dow team. You can go out and take a look at the Dows if you haven't already. And thank you very much. have some questions this would be awesome to while we have Tim in here um, so any questions let's send us around room in the back here when you were talking about the hook the six hook on the radar now with the hooks and the tornadoes, do they always rotate in a counterclockwise position? Okay, the question was uh, with the hook, do, do they, they always rotate counterclockwise? The vast majority of them do. We do see sometimes on the south end of that six, we see actually a little nine develop. It's paired up at the bottom of that six. And occasionally you will get an anticyclonic or a tornado that rotates clockwise south of the main circulation. I've seen that a number of times, and it's actually quite dangerous when you're filming a large tornado because you get focused in on it. And maybe there's another tornado that's rotating the other way that occurs to your backside and is coming towards you around the east side of the big circulation. So, yeah, uh, most of the tornadoes do rotate the counterclockwise direction, but occasionally you will get this on very big uh, tornado events, you will get these anticyclonic tornadoes that can occur. Oh, I have a question. Okay. Um, we, I once was under a tornado funnel. It, uh, I was, I'm a storm spotter, so I was doing what I was supposed to do, and one developed and dissipated, and then suddenly there was another one right overhead. I looked right up into it. It's like looking into a garden hose. And um, 
the wind was maybe 30 or 40 miles an hour out of the east and then north as it was rotating around it. So I was wondering, how fast does the wind have to be blowing before you actually consider it to have touched down? That's a really good question. The definition of a tornado, how, how do you define what a tornado really is? Well, from obviously a visual standpoint, you're looking for dirt underneath a funnel or condensation from a wind speed standpoint, it's, it's got to be pretty strong. I mean, it's almost got to be uh, 40 meters a second, 100 miles an hour. To, to, and, and you, you know, it's, there are all kinds of definitions about what a tornado and a gustnado, you know, is and are. But typically, it's just about 100 miles an hour in contact with the ground as a vortex. Now, you can get them weaker than that a little bit, but it has to be connected to the base of the cumulonimbus cloud because the definition is pretty generic. It's a violently rotating column of air in contact with the ground under a cumulonimbus cloud. That's, that could be you know, a lot of different wind speeds. I'm really looking for work. <laughs> you know, I'm going to go out there on the interstate and say Storm Chaser needs Armada to help uh, because I'm really um, looking for another project to, to be part of. You know, I just love the science of storm chasing. I think that's, there's still so much to learn from observation out there. It's still an observational science. It all isn't just computers. And I, I still think there's a lot to be learned out there, and I wish there was Vortex 2 for several years, not just those two years, because, I mean, although the amount of information they got is tremendous, and somebody needs to look at that information, and that's a lot of graduate students, there's still a lot of unknowns. One thing that was really clear to me about Vortex 2 was there were more questions that got generated by this experiment than answers in a lot of, a lot of instances. I think that we, we have a lot more questions we want to go out there and try to find answers to, which may lead to more questions. Yes? A pods weigh about 100 pounds, so it needs two people to handle the pod. I cannot handle the pod by myself. I've Ryan, you just lost your punchline. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay, thank you very much. I have a two-part question. Okay. You've got your tornadoes then. We've recently been hearing a lot about straight-line winds, and they can be just as damaging, if not worse. Now, what's the difference in the airflow and how a straight-line wind produces compared to a tornado? Excellent question. The difference between a straight-line wind and a tornado. You know, the buildings don't know what kind of wind it is. They don't know if it's a straight wind or a tornado wind. All they know is it's wind. So they react pretty much the same. You get a 100-mile-an-hour tornado and a 100-mile-an-hour straight wind, you know, it, it's going to cause pretty much the same level of damages as depending on the size of the tornado. Most tornadoes are bigger than your average house. Yes, with uh, Doppler radar, they can determine straight line wind events. Uh, obviously, as you get away from the radar, that beam goes higher and higher, so you lose a lot of that near ground uh, detection. So. Close into the radars, yeah, you can be able to tell pretty, pretty easily rotation, straight line winds, low level features like that. Yes. Right. Uh, another good question about multi-vortices and anticyclonic. Well, the case that comes to my mind is the Grand Island event of 1980. In that event, there were three anticyclonic tornadoes. 
along with five you know, cyclonic tornadoes. It was, tornadoes were dropping out all over the place. But when you look at the radar, that was when I was talking earlier about you could see on the radar the large circulation, figure six on the hook, and then the figure nine below it showing the anticyclonic just south and to the west of the big cyclonic. So I, I have not seen a multi-vortex myself anticyclonic because I've seen so very few of them. But I'm sure they exist. And they're sure, I'm sure they're out there. Yes? Was Vortex 2 too big? In some respects, yes. Because there's a lot of people. I mean, it's dealing with an army. All right, so if you're dealing with an army and you're trying to get them to quickly to a place, it's difficult to do it, you know? Uh, trying to get across all that terrain, different aspects, dealing with it. And it's not just so simple as just getting to the storm. The radar folks, they've got to get a grid established so they can triangulate. So they've got to go to their positions. Then you've got to level the radar truck. That radar out there has got to be leveled so that you don't be shooting beams all over. You need to know where those beams are. So that takes time. And of course, time, Mother Nature doesn't care about time uh, on the aspect. So in a lot of respects, yeah, it was, it, was, it was really big. But I think we did quite well with the storms that we, were, we had. Well, cold air funnels occur typically underneath uh, like an upper low as it comes across. Uh, we have an upper low actually coming o over um, in the next uh, 48 hours. It's going to be very cold aloft. And sometimes in a, what would be a relatively stable environment, it gets so cold aloft that you actually get convection out of that. And you can actually get enough instability upstairs to produce these cold air kind of funnels. That's why they call them cold air. They're under the cold core of that upper low system. So yeah, that's, uh, they rarely touch down, but I've, I've had accounts where the, I've read that where a, a couple of them have touched down. Most of them, yeah. Uh, my question is about the future of Vortex. Would there be a Vortex 3? Will there be a Vortex 3 if, uh, Dr. Houston can write a great proposal and sell it. Well, maybe it'll be a Vortex 3. And uh, I don't know, you figure Vortex 1 was in 94, 95. Vortex 2 is in 2010. It takes about 15 years. I'll be about 72 years old. Yeah, I'm, I'm game for Vortex 3. <laughs> As long as I can, you know, hold a hold a pod with one hand and my cane in the other, <laughs> I'd be okay. Thank you, folks. <laughs>